The religious customs and beliefs of the Canaanites, an ancient civilization that preceded Israel, are still largely unknown and often up for some debate. While some have considered the Canaanites to be worshippers of traditional fertility gods, others appropriate a darker and perhaps more nefarious figure that held dominion over the ancient Near East. Meanwhile, the people who became the Israelites appear to have developed faith in a god who lived in the wilderness, or as more commonly believed, lived everywhere. It was this God that Abraham sealed the covenant with, and it was this God that Moses was tasked by to bring the Hebrews out of Egypt. Believers of today would view him as the God, and most importantly for them, the only God. It was this God that watched over the early Israelites, and accompanied them on their journey through the desert, protecting them, feeding them, and comforting them when needed. It was he who guided them to the promised land of Canaan, which is where the early Israelites would have been miffed to discover that another deity already presided there, one the Canaanites called Baal or Baal. Baal or Baal, whose name was thought to mean owner or lord, was worshipped by the Canaanites as a fertility god, and was perhaps one of the most important gods in their pantheon, as well as the prince or lord of the earth itself. Amongst this grand title, he was also thought to be the bringer of rain and dew, that which promoted his stance as a fertility god, as he provided moisture for the fertile lands of Canaan, allowing for sustenance for his followers. In other tellings, he was also regarded as a storm god, and closely associated with the Mesopotamian god Hadad, who was also a storm and fertility god, and a deity who was not to be reckoned with. It has since been suggested that as the cult of Hadad grew in popularity, his name was thought of as too holy to even be mentioned by mere mortals, and so the Baal, or Lord, was introduced which may suggest why the two were frequently associated. Yet Hadad and Baal appear to be two distinct entities, at least by the first millennium. The name Baal, with an accent over the A, is thought to have derived from Greek, and the term appears in the New Testament and the Septuagint. Meanwhile, its Latinized form without the accent appears in the Vulgate, in both cases, the biblical sense around Baal is that he was a false god. Meanwhile, in the traditional Semitic languages, the name appears with the apostrophe between the A's, and reads Baal, which is thought to signify the word owner, lord, or even husband. In various ancient communities, the term Baalim was also thought to be the pluralized form of Baal suggesting that there were multiple deities of the same name, or that Baal could take on multiple individual forms at once. Various cognates of the word also include the Amoric Baal, the Akkadian Belu or Bel, and the Arabic Baal, which can serve as names for various Mesopotamian gods, or serve as words that indicate ownership 
or possession. There is also the feminine form Bala, which in Hebrew and Arabic can mean the lady of the house, or a rare form for the word wife. The word Baal, when used as a title to mean Lord, was also thought to be synonymous with the Hebraic word Adon, also meaning Lord, or Adonai, meaning my Lord. Today, it is still used in various communities as an alias for the Lord of Israel, Yahweh, or the name of God. According to some scholars, by this translation, the early Hebrews may have used Baal to identify Yahweh, where the name had less of a stigma attached to it. We can also see the name Baal used in various biblical names, including Judge Gideon, who was also known as Jeroboam, or Saul's son Eshbaal. So with this, there has stemmed an idea that Yahweh and the Canaanite Baal were one in the same, but there is little evidence to really support this, and the connection proposed between the two might purely be coincidental. Another idea is that by the 9th century before the Common Era, when Jezebel introduced Israel to her Baal and encouraged them to neglect Yahweh, the Israelites came to resent the name, and as the struggle between Yahweh and Baal intensified, the name Baal was abandoned by the Israelites, and even became the congenial of shame. In fact, the aforementioned name of Jeroboam and Eshbaal were thought to have been replaced because of this, to Jeroboshev and Ishbosheth respectively. Bosheth meaning shame. What we know of the personality and function of Baal comes less so from the Bible and more so from the original tablets that were uncovered in the ancient city of Ugea in modern day Syria, which date back to the second millennium before the Common Era. The tablets speak mainly of the fertility in which the deity of the Canaanites promoted, and that Baal was locked in an internal conflict with Mot, the god of death and sterility, quite literally the antithesis of himself. The narrative seems to tell us that the fruitfulness of crops was dependent on a seven-year cycle, and that man could expect either seven years of good harvest or seven years of drought and famine. This cycle was determined by whether Baal or Mot were victorious in their confrontation, suggesting that both were of equal power, and that both had a chance of victory. Other stories from the tablets speak of Baal's relationship with his sister wife Anath, as well as his profound siring of a bull from a haifa. That which might sound weird, but also comes to exemplify the Canaanite belief that Baal advocated fertileness and life itself, as well as supplying an abundance of animals and crops. In some cases, Baal was also thought to be a weather god, and that the acrid summers of the desert were explained by Baal's descent into the underworld, after a possible defeat from Mot. Meanwhile, the storms of autumn and winter and the revival of the land were said to be explained by his resurgence after having risen out from the underworld and then defeating Mot. But Baal doesn't appear to have simply existed from the dawn of time as the dominant authority. 
but instead was thought to have seized his position by usurping the other gods. In some myths, Baal is seen to overtake his father El, the king of the gods, and he is seen to have a most glorious temple built for him by the other gods in Ugarit, perhaps a sign of their subservience to him in his gradual rise to power. In some cases, Baal is also seen as the son of Dagon, another god of crops and fertility. It's also thought that the Canaanites' dependence on the rain for survival saw them prey more and more in favour of a weather god like Baal, and so before long, El was considered less important than that of Baal, a god who literally bought them what they needed to survive. We see Baal in another adversarial relationship similar to that of Mot, and that is with the god Yam of the sea. He who was thought to either take on the form of a serpent, or who summoned the serpent Lotan to fight Baal, that which became something of an equivalency to the biblical Leviathan. After his victory over Yam, or Lotan, Baal would be regarded by the Canaanites and the Phoenicians as a patron god of sailors, and was thought to bring protection to those who had braved the waters. Worship of Baal would spread to Egypt, and further throughout the Mediterranean, after the Phoenician colonization in the first millennium before the Common Era. It is here that depending on the region, he would begin to be called upon by many different names and epithets that vastly differed in both behaviour and importance. But amongst the regions where he was celebrated and worshipped, he was regarded as the mightiest of the heroes, the most powerful one, and generally an undisputed deity. Phoenician inscriptions also refer to him as Winged Baal, suggesting his ability to fly and or his possession of wings, as well as Baal of the Arrows, suggesting his choice of weapon. In some portrayals, he is seen as a man with the head and horns of a bull, which is also noted in some biblical accounts. He is sometimes depicted as holding a lightning bolt in his right hand, that which he raises above his head to demonstrate his control over the weather and his more destructive nature as a storm god. He is also seen to be seated upon a throne, furthermore suggesting his position as the king of all gods by the Canaanites. Some have even drawn similarities between Baal and the Greek god Zeus, both of whom are famous for their lightning bolts, and sit at the top of their respective pantheons. But where does Baal fit into the narrative of the Bible? As you might imagine, his power as a storm god, as described by the Canaanites, is much less touched upon, and the significance of his power as a fertility god is perhaps entirely absent. Instead, Baal is vilified in the Bible on virtually all of his mentions, and in fact, he doesn't actually seem to appear, but is instead poised in some instances as not even existing. In this, Baal becomes something of a delusion of the Canaanites and all who follow him, and more often than not, Baal and his worshippers are thwarted, if not portrayed as something vile and detestable. 
We see this firstly in Judges 2, where after God has helped Joshua and his people take the promised land, a new generation who was ignorant of their sacrifices grew up. The Bible tells us, after that whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors, another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals. They forsook the Lord, the God of their ancestors, who had brought them out of Egypt. They followed and worshipped various gods of the people around them. They aroused the Lord's anger because they forsook him and served Baal. Evidently, we can see that the ignorance of this particular generation led to a lack of faith in God, and that they were lured away by the appeals of Baal and the other gods, which may have appeared to have been more tangible. The Bible shows us that this generation of people were not only disrespecting God in their neglect of him, but also disrespecting their own ancestors, who had strived for the promised land. They do not appreciate the hardships of those who came before them and are painted as insolent and even ungrateful for what they have now. The Bible tells us here that God becomes angry with this attitude, particularly their forsaking of him in favour of Baal, a God who had in essence done nothing to assist their advancement upon the land. To punish them, the Bible tells us, In his anger against Israel, the Lord gave them into the hands of the raiders who plundered them. He sold them into the hands of their enemies all around, whom they were no longer able to resist. Whenever Israel went out to fight, the hand of the Lord was against them to defeat them, just as he had sworn to them. They were in great distress. This goes to show believers the magnitude of God's anger when one abandons him in favour of other gods, and that his anger is utterly relentless. It warns believers that they should not idolise other deities, and that if they should turn their back on him in favour of another, they will pay for it and find themselves, as the Israelites did, in great distress. The chapter then comes to tell us of 11 judges who God raises to save Israel from the raiders. Each judge comes and lives amongst several generations of the Israelites, and whilst they are alive, Israel comes to reconcile with God and to rectify their ways. Yet whenever one of these judges passes away, Israel returns to their worship of Baal and the other gods that which the Lord became furious with. We are told, Then the Lord raised up judges, who saved them out of the hands of these raiders. Yet they would not listen to their judges, but prostituted themselves to other gods and worshipped them. They quickly turned from the ways of their ancestors, who had been obedient to the Lord's commands. Whenever the Lord raised up a judge for them, he was with the judge, and saved them out of the hands of their enemies as long as the judge lived. For the Lord relented because of their groaning under those who oppressed and afflicted them. The people returned to ways even more corrupt than those of their ancestors, following other gods 
and serving and worshipping them. They refuse to give up their evil practices and stubborn ways. We understand that the Israelites would continue to worship Baal for seven years before they began to realize that their prayers to their new god were not being answered. Whilst Baal might have brought the rain in the eyes of these Israelites, he did not offer them protection from the Midianites, those who were an oppressive people who harassed Israel so badly that many were forced to flee into the mountains. The Bible tells us that this was God's doing and that he handed the Israelites over to the Midianites to do with as they pleased, for the Israelites no longer believed in him anyway. We also see that the Israelites come to realize that Baal is not helping them and that they were wrong to turn their back on God, for he would never have allowed this to happen to them. The Bible tells us, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and for seven years he gave them into the hands of the Midianites. Because the power of Midian was so oppressive, the Israelites prepared shelters for themselves in mountain clefts, caves and strongholds. Whenever the Israelites planted their crops, the Midianites, Amalekites and other eastern people invaded the country. They camped on the land and ruined the crops all the way to Gaza and did not spare a living thing for Israel, neither sheep nor cattle nor donkeys. They came up with their livestock and their tents like swarms of locusts. It was impossible to count them or their camels. They invaded the land to ravage it. Midian so impoverished the Israelites that they cried out to the Lord for help. With this, God does come to the aid of the Israelites by sending them a prophet in the form of Gideon. Gideon tells them of why they have been suffering in the way that they have, but his words do not appear to move the Israelites to make any significant changes in spite of their circumstances. So God instructs Gideon to take a more drastic step to destroy the altar of Baal. We are told, the Lord said to him, take the second bull from your father's herd, the one seven years old, tear down your father's altar to Baal and cut down the Asherah pole beside it. Then build a proper kind of altar to the Lord your God on the top of this height. Using the wood of the Asherah pole that you cut down, offer the second bull as a burnt offering. So here we have one of the first instances of conflict between God and Baal. Whilst the two do not personally duke it out by any means, it can be said that God worked through Gideon to strike first blood upon Baal by destroying his altar, that which was symbolic for God destroying Baal. It might also be said that because Baal was often depicted as having a bull's head, Gideon burning the bull as an offering is symbolic for him burning Baal and removing him from Israel, or perhaps sacrificing Baal in favor of the more powerful God. When the people learned of the destruction of the altar, they were peeved to say the least. Despite everything they had endured from the Midianites, many were still unwilling to relinquish their worship of Baal and sought instead to punish Gideon for demolishing that which was sacred to them.
But Joash, Gideon's father, comes to his son's defense and tells the mob who had gathered to punish Gideon, are you going to plead Baal's cause? Are you trying to save him? Whoever fights for him shall be put to death by morning. If Baal really is a god, he can defend himself when someone breaks down his altar. So because Gideon broke down Baal's altar, they gave him the name Jeroboam that day, saying, let Baal contend with him. So here we see Joash pointing out that if Baal is so powerful, then Baal himself will punish Gideon for what he has done, much like how God had punished them by delivering them to the Midianites. We also learn that because of his actions, the Baal worshippers named Gideon Jeroboam, meaning let Baal contend with him, suggesting that they heeded Jerash's words and left Gideon be, probably in hopes that Baal would strike him in more painful ways than they could themselves. But what ends up happening is that Gideon is chosen by God to lead several armies against the Midianite forces, and against all odds, manages to defeat them by following all of the Lord's commands and remaining faithful to him. Gideon proceeds to rout out the last of the non-believers and those who challenge him and God before single-handedly restoring peace upon Israel and placing it back in the graces of God. The Israelites renounce their worship of Baal and God is held once more as the only being who is worshipped amongst the community. The Bible tells us that there was peace in the land for over 40 years as a result of the reconciliation between Israel and God. But when Gideon died, it would appear that Israel regressed back into the allures of Baal, for we are told, no sooner had Gideon died that the Israelites again prostituted themselves to the Baals. They set up Baal-Bereth as their god, and did not remember the Lord, their god, who had rescued them from the hands of all their enemies on every side. They also failed to show any loyalty to the family of Jeroboam, that is, Gideon, in spite of all the good things he had done for them. Later in the first book of Samuel, we see the Israelites earn even more bad luck when they come into conflict with the Philistines. The Philistines launched an attack on the Israelites, and in a fierce battle at Ebenezer, the Israelites were overcome, and 4,000 men paid the ultimate price. When the elders of the Israelites had gathered their bearings, they couldn't understand why God had allowed them to be so thoroughly decimated. When they couldn't think of an answer, they began to strategize against the Philistines and decided that one surefire way to win was to bring the Ark of the Covenant into the Philistine camp. For if God was with them in a physical sense, then they would surely crush the Philistines. But whilst the Philistines initially cowered at the sight of the Ark as it was drawn into their camp, they eventually found courage and were still able to butcher the Israelites and steal the ark for themselves. The loss of both life and the ark is so devastating to the Israelites that it sees the people endure a great spiritual depression. 
one that claims even more of their lives. A sense of hopelessness is dispersed amongst the people who grieve the loss of the Ark, and they are utterly forsaken. It would seem that many of the Israelites lost their faith in God at this time, and had abandoned him altogether, or that they became attracted once again to Baal, who in their time of need offered some comfort where their own God had not. But the Philistines begin to suffer from a series of calamities, and after several devastations, they deem that the Ark is responsible and seek to send it back to the Israelites. With the return of the Ark, the Israelites rejoice, and their faith in God is re-established. After the return of the Ark, which appeared to have boosted morale and reinvigorated a belief in God, the Israelites are quick to get behind Samuel, a prophet previously chosen by God, and they appear to earn a shot at redemption. The Bible tells us, Then all the people of Israel turned back to the Lord. So Samuel said to all the Israelites, If you are returning to the Lord with all your hearts, then rid yourselves of the foreign gods and the Ashtoreths and commit yourselves to the Lord and serve him only. And he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the Israelites put away their Baals and their Ashtoreths and served the Lord only. Much like the case with Gideon's generation, it takes a traumatic event to snap the Israelites back into seeing God as their salvation. It would appear that naturally, the appeal of Baal is ever-present during this time, and when the presence of God begins to wane, many were quick to find allegiance with Baal and declare him as their god. Yet the motif that presents itself in the Bible is that yes, one might be free to choose their god, but in the end, that god will not save them from raiders of a neighbouring town or the massacres by the Philistines. Furthermore, if God is not chosen in the first place, then this will lead to more calamities and more hardships, particularly for the chosen people of Israel, who God may have been notably harsher on, given that they ironically were the people he chose, even though they continuously betrayed him for Baal. In any case, with the emergence of Samuel, who promises to deliver them out of the hands of the Philistines, the Israelites cast Baal away again, and appear to have learned their lesson. This continues to be the case for many years, until we see the return of Baal during the reign of the Israelite king Ahab. Now Ahab does not appear to reintroduce Baal on his own whims, but instead appears to be goaded into doing so by the daughter of Ethbaal, the king of the Sidonians who would also become his wife. The Bible tells us that he also married Jezebel, daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and began to serve Baal and worship him. He set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal that he built in Samaria. Ahab also made an Asherah pole and did more to arouse the anger of the Lord, the God of Israel, than did all the kings of Israel before him. This would indicate that whilst Baal had been cast out of Israel for some time, 
there were many other regions where his worship was still very much prominent. As some might say here that Ahab becomes seduced by not just his wife, but by the idea of Baal, and like the Israelites before him, he angers God in his decision to pay homage to him instead. We later see Elijah, a prophet at the time, confront Ahab for what he is doing, and he tells him, I have not made trouble for Israel, but you and your father's family have. You have abandoned the Lord's commands and have followed the Baals. Now summon the people from all over Israel to meet me on Mount Carmel and bring the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. Here we see Elijah proceed to demonstrate to Ahab and the rest of the Israelites who is the most powerful between God and Baal. Ahab gathers the 450 prophets of Baal and meets Elijah atop Mount Carmel, where they proceed to engage in a contest of which god is more powerful. The contest is stipulated by Elijah, who declares that each side will prepare a bull to be sacrificed, but that the participants are not allowed to light the sacrificial fire themselves. That part would need to be conducted by god or Baal, and whichever of their gods created a bigger blaze of flames would be declared the winner. Elijah also allows the prophets of Baal to go first, and after they have prepared their sacrifice, they spend all day calling upon Baal to light it for them. No matter how hard they beckon or how hard they pray, Baal does not answer them, and their sacrifice remains unlit. Even as the prophets begin to dance around the sacrifice and conduct ritual upon ritual, Baal remains silent. Elijah then has his sacrifice prepared, and as you might imagine, after he calls upon the Lord, the Lord obliterates the sacrifice with a plume of flames. In fact, the Bible tells us that God doesn't just burn the sacrifice, but the wood, the stones, the soil, and the water in the trench. With this, the winner of the contest is undeniably Elijah's God, which then sees him proceed to seize all 450 of the prophets of Baal and murder them all. Interestingly, the Bible tells us that after this event took place, God caused it to rain, perhaps a sign that he truly was more powerful than Baal given that he demonstrates mastery over the weather, something that Baal was previously credited for as a weather god. Many might be wondering why it took the Israelites so long to learn their lesson, and why they were even doubtful when choosing between God and Baal, especially considering that God had proven himself in their times of need. But to say Baal didn't do the same may not be entirely true considering that when the Israelites entered Canaan and found fertile land that they had not known before, it was Baal who locally was said to bring the rain to nurture said land. The Canaanites would have attributed the coming of rain, that which was a most welcome event in a land so acrid, to the likes of Baal. And so it's easy to see how this notion of him caught on with the Israelites. 
But this is where the problems began. For where many were quick to offer gratitude to Baal for this ripe and fruitful land, others were quick to remember that it was their God, or Yahweh, that had led them here in the first place. This created not just a divide between the Israelites and the Canaanites, but a divide within the Israelite community itself. Others may have likely seen the existence of both Baal and Yahweh as a bit of a dilemma in itself. For were they meant to worship Baal for the rain, or were they meant to worship Yahweh for having led them out of Egypt? Perhaps on some level, worshipping both simultaneously wouldn't have been out of the realm of possibility. But as we've seen in the book of Judges, and the book of Samuel, a classic case of does your God know my God came into play, and it would see an intense battle between several communities in an effort to establish monotheism as well as a need for God in a time that was far harsher than we could ever know. It can be said that the plight of the Israelites during this time can be reflected today amongst believers in their own faith. For whilst they likely don't deliberate between serving God and Baal, they might find themselves struggling to serve God alone, and may find themselves succumbing to idolization of other possessions, relationships, money, or even other gods. 